Good morning, class. Sunday, July 28th. We continue our class on relationships with an excursus down conflict resolution lane. Our handout this morning is called Wisdom for Relational Conflict. Uh, The main text we're going to look at is James chapter 4, but I'm going to introduce this uh, as a conflict resolution, as a wisdom issue. Uh, James is the wisdom book of the New Testament, as it were. We see a lot about relational conflict addressed in the book of Proverbs, the ultimate wisdom book of the Old Testament. And let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your precious people. They've gathered because they love you and you've put in their hearts a hunger for the truth. I pray you would teach us, you'd help us, you'd shape and mold our hearts into that which you want them to be. Thank you that you are the ultimate conflict resolver, having uh, come to this world in your Son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile all things to yourself. Glory in you, your grace, your mercy, the work of Christ. It's ultimately why we're here. So give us now wisdom together to speak helpfully to one another and uh, use the collective wisdom and experiences of the group as we have opportunity to share to edify us and enlarge our understanding, uh, mold our hearts more to Christ-likeness. In his precious name, amen. You've heard that in life, inevitable is taxes and death. We have to add to that conflict. It is inevitable in life because we live in a Genesis 3 world. Conflict is inevitable. Notice how this is borne out in uh, at least two ways from Proverbs, just to warm us up in the bullpen as it were. First, dealing with conflict makes you beautiful. Somebody read for us Proverbs 20, verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. What does the verse assume? You're able to identify strife, right? And what must be going on in your heart to keep away from it, if that's what we're supposed to do? What do you need in your heart? What fruit of the Spirit do you need in your heart to stay away from strife? Sorry? Self-control. Self-control. Um, and, you know, and, and obviously discernment. If, if there's your two kids, or your kid is fighting with another kid, and you're the parent, you probably need to step in and deal with it. Okay? So remember that Proverbs are aphorisms. They're general, pithy statements about the nature of life that are true, true as a rule. But you don't absolutize Proverbs. So really the way you get the clearest picture on reality is you take all the Proverbs that speak to a specific issue and then you get your clear sense of what the Bible is teaching on it. So as a rule, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man. And here's the contrast. What is contrast? In, but any fool will quarrel. What's con- what does that mean? The first half of the verse is identifying is the conduct of a wise person. The fool versus the wise, the f- any fool will quarrel. What's going on in the heart of a fool that he wants to quarrel? They like to pick fights. They like to pick fights, and Nabal will be motivating that, the, the pleasure taken in picking fights. Is there something deep in the heart? Uh, usually it could be someone's insecure, and they want to feel better than somebody else. Quite often, they're insecure, they need to feel better about themselves, they pick a fight to win a fight so that somehow in their own mind, 
their stock goes up. I think that's probably true as a rule across the board. So keeping away from strife is an honor for a man. When you set out uh, through the course of the day, do you think, okay, now Lord, what will bring glory to you and honor to me as a person? Can you think about that? This verse encourages you to ask the question, could this be me? Okay. Well, I, 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 I want my life crowned with honor for God's glory's sake. Therefore, I'm, I've got my antennas up, and if I see a strife, as a rule, I'm going to keep away from it. Do you know situations where you're tempted to enter into a quarrel? Where you'd be, you would be more precipitous than other times to enter into a quarrel? Are there situations where, or subject matters, you might be more quick to quarrel about? How about in our Reformed Presbyterian tradition? What do we tend to like to quarrel about? <laughs> Come on! What do we have really better than everybody else? Or so we think. Yeah. Our theology. So I'm going to be more tempted to enter into a quarrel of that because I think our theology is superior and... Right? I mean, I'm an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. I believe in the Westminster Confession. That's probably the finest summary of biblical doctrine that's ever been written by man. I believe that. And so I'm, I might want to be more ready to pick a fight in that area versus electrical engineering. I know nothing of that. For example, right? Okay. How about the next one? And, and I've teased these out in terms of being proactive. Proactive. So you start the day by praying, where I see strife, Lord, give me grace to keep away from it. Where's my weakness here? And then reactive. Somebody read Proverbs 19.11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. So what, what's the advertisement here? What's the appeal? What is wisdom inviting you to desire? According to the verse. Peace. Peace. Discretion is the, is the avenue towards this. Look at the second half of the verse. Huh? Don't be impulsive. Slow to anger isn't like pause and size it up and use discretion to determine. Okay, so that's the methodology, but what's the appeal? What, what, are, what is it motivate? Why is it motivating you to do that? According to the second half of the verse. His glory. It's your glory. This is what you think makes you beautiful. So we all do New Year's Eve resolutions. I have a sermon on this called Beauty for the New Year. What is it the thing you think is going to make you beautiful, attractive, cause people to like you, draw attention to yourself? How many of us intuitively think, oh, the ability to overlook transgressions makes me beautiful? That's what the scripture says. It makes you beautiful. So it's appealing to this internal sense of I want to appear in some form of glory. And that's okay, because in the Garden of Eden before the fall, who, what was the most glorious thing there beyond God? Adam and Eve, crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8. Nothing compared to them in all of creation, not the stars, not the sun. Adam and Eve were the most glorious things in all of creation because they were made in the image of God. Okay? So that desire to reflect a kind of glory is still deep in our souls. But sin has skewed it so that we're going to seek that glory on our own terms, irrespective of God, and often at the cost of our relationship with other people. Okay, so it's your glory to overlook a transgression. The verb there, overlook, in the Hebrew, conveys the idea of keeping the relationship moving. 
keeping the relationship moving. All things being equal, what, after you've had a conflict with somebody, what do you want the relationship to look like in the morning? Still there. We're still moving along. Okay. So far as it, Romans 12, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Anything else you want to say about those two verses? Pretty potent stuff, isn't it? Dealing well with conflict makes you beautiful. How often do we think about it that way? But that's the clear teaching of Scripture. And then just the other observation from Proverbs, there are devastating results from unrestrained quarreling. Proverbs 18, 19, who would read that for us? Okay, why, why, um, why this image? Is the sage pulling from uh, images that are readily known to, the, to his audience? Absolutely, absolutely. What's the, what's the sense you get from this verse? First of all, what's the problem? A brother has been offended. offended. We don't know why, and that's okay, because in general... When there's an offense created in a relationship, this is painting a picture of the result of it. And what's the result? You should want to do what with that relationship? What's, you want to win them back. Somebody's offended, you want to win them back. And that's hard because and that's as hard as what? What are the two images? The walls of the city and uh, bars. Right? So you look at you look at a city and you go, we can't win that city. What's a classic example of that in the Old Testament? Jericho. We can't we can't walls of Jericho, we can't win that city. And that might imply, just as a slight aside, sometimes the Lord wants you to walk around this problem and just keep praying until He gives you the solution. Maybe sometimes. Maybe you just need to wait on the Lord and keep praying and keep walking it out, as it were. So that's a strong city. I can't win that. And contentions between brothers are like bars of a castle. What do bars of a castle do? Separate. Divide them. It either keeps people in if it's a prison or keeps people out if it's a fortress. Okay? Man, that's pretty, pretty vivid stuff, isn't it? So Proverbs is, is so realistic about the fallout of relational conflict. It is really hard to, uh, so if you start out your day and you read that verse, first question might be, for yourself, could that be me? Where am I likely to have contention or to create offense with another person? Where am I likely today to be offended by another person? And what might you do with respect to that? If you know that in this day you're going to run across a situation that has potential for conflict, what might you do? You might need to avoid the person. You might need to, right? The problem with the young man in Proverbs 7 is he goes by the street of a the, of the prostitute. He needed to avoid that place. Okay. You might need to avoid that person, but preemptively, how do you want to treat this potential problem? What do you want to do about it? Pray. Pray. Ask the Lord for wisdom. Get your heart under the control of the Holy Spirit so that that self-control, that patience, that fruit, that gentleness is there. And somebody read Proverbs 17, 14. The 
beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Okay, this assumes that you're in a quarrel with somebody. Is that going to happen? Yeah. Yes. What, uh, as a rule, if you're in a quarrel with somebody, what should you start to plan to do? Just stay in it and fight it out to the end. No, what should you try to do? What's the verb? Abandon it. Abandon it. You want to go into, I, this quarrel probably isn't going to go anywhere good. I want to try to get out of this. Okay? And what's the image in the first half of the verse? A leaf. What's that name? Like a leaf. A leaf. Really hard to get it back in. So it's a proverbial finger in the dike, right? Finger in the dike. You don't put your finger in there, that hole gets bigger, bigger. Water is very powerful. It seeks its own level. It starts gushing. Ah, this is out of control. So the beginning of strife, when you sense that you're starting strife with somebody, a good rule of thumb is? Come out. Uh, you're getting an argument with your spouse. You're getting an argument with your kid. You're getting an argument with your roommate, with a friend. When you sense that we have, we're at the strife level, what should one of the two of you do? Just say, hey, this probably isn't going in a great direction. I hope this doesn't appear like I'm trying to bail because I'm losing. But we need to cool it. We need to let tempers and emotions subside. Let's stop this and come back together and let cooler heads prevail. You're going to get a lot more done. I mean, you know there's kind of discussions where you start, and all they do is go downhill. This happens a lot parents with teenagers, because teenagers, when they start a trinity age, they become attorneys. They never want to lose a case. They're, they become really, some of, some of our kids become really, really, really good at arguing. And they want to argue until the cows come home. And you just have to say, we're done. Stop. Maybe go to your room. Okay. The, the letting out, uh, the, the, um, uh, the beginning of strife is about letting out of water. So all of a sudden you're flooded. You're flooded in misunderstanding and hot emotions and not a lot of good happens. Okay. Two main observations from Proverbs. Dealing with conflict makes you beautiful. There are devastating results from unrestrained quarreling. Has that set the table for you? Has that whet your appetite to say, wow, I need to know now what the New Testament says about this because we really need help. We're ready? Is this table set pretty well? Anybody want to say anything else about number one? Are there uh, certain personalities that kind of like quarrels? Yeah, they do make good lawyers, incidentally. Are there certain personalities that like to completely avoid quarrels? Yeah, some of us are born that way, I think. I, and then, you know, we're shaped by... Uh, nurture and nature and all that stuff. Yeah, so some of it's personality and uh, just be, it takes a certain amount of self-awareness. So number two, the most helpful anatomy of conflict appears in James, the wisdom book of the New Testament. Let me go ahead and read this for you. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now that's the question of a wise person. Let's get to the source. Let's not just deal with the surface issues. Is not the source, thank you that the scripture answers the question, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. 
You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. This thing is packed, packed full of goodies. Let's appreciate the context. I'm going to go back into the previous chapter, chapter 3, and read verse 16 for us. Or you can read it off the handout. This is the greater context that sets up the first part of chapter 4. James 3.16 Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Okay, in, in, this, in that context, James is contrasting true biblical wisdom from earthly wisdom. And he sort of throws in there uh, uh, a human trial... And he identifies something that plagues human relationships, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There's disorder in every evil thing. It's an observation about the relational cost of jealousy and ambition. Now, that's not a place many of us want to live, disorder and evil. How many of you woke up this morning and said, I can't wait to get to the place in my day-to-day where there's evil and disorder. How many of you desire that when you woke up this morning? No, we intuitively don't desire that. We really intuitively desire the other thing. What were you made for? The opposite of this. You were made for order and righteousness. That's the world God made and created us to live in. What is jealousy? Simple definition of jealousy. You're consumed with Something you don't have. I'm jealous of Radu's gifts. I'm jealous of this person's appearance. I'm jealous of this person's resources. I'm jealous of this person's status. You're consumed with what somebody else has. Okay? Jealousy. What's self-ambition? What's that? You're consumed with what you want. Okay? And ultimately, those two are sort of two sides of the same coin. They're both all about you. When you're jealous of what somebody else wants, it's still a focus on you. So jealousy, consume with what you have, uh, with what the other person has. Selfless ambition, consume with what you want. Um, these eat up what makes for a great place to live. And what one word captures a great place for us to live together. Harmony, peace. So these are all about, the, these two vices uh, focused on me. What's the word that captures being focused on another person? Other centeredness. You heard any sermons on other centeredness in this church? You heard them from me. 
This is what the gospel is designed to produce. This is what the this is the mark of the humble heart. It's Philippians two. When you have the mind of Christ, you think more highly of others than you do of yourself, which seems utterly and ridiculously out of reach unless there's a Jesus who did the same and went to the cross for our sins when we were his enemies. And that cross is pounding into our hearts, that love is stripping our hearts, the only thing in the world that can make anybody other-centered. But that makes for a wonderful family, a wonderful marriage, a wonderful church, a wonderful small group, a wonderful working community, other-centered. And you really don't know the gospel until you become another centered person. That's the goal of the gospel. It's to get you outside of yourself. So it tells him what the person I'm talking about, this person, this person tells me how much Jesus loves him, da 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 and it's one of me and Jesus, and I'm relating to that very well. And here's another person in their life that they don't care to give, they don't, they don't care to like or love. Where's the breakdown? Is there a breakdown? Yeah, because authentically, when the love of Christ is in my heart, it is going to get me out of myself to care for that person. So the gospel has power to even enable you to love your enemies. doesn't mean you feel you like them. To love them is you want what's best for them. Okay. <clears throat> so, these Vices eat up what makes for a great place to live, other-centeredness. The broader context, number two, is God's plan for the church and for the family, and that is he wants these relational spheres to mirror his love for the church. God is rescuing us from the ravages of sin corporately. Now, if you ask me honestly, I tend to think about that individualistically. Jesus is rescuing me from the ravages of sin. But guess what? You belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. We therefore belong to each other. God's plan is that in the church, together we're being, re- we're being rescued from the rises of sin. This is a corporate, I think Paul Tripp puts it this way, uh, sanctification is a community project. Anybody know the writings of Tripp well enough? To I think that's his phrase. Sanctification is a community endeavor. We're doing this together. So in what sense do we need each other in this? What do you have eyes to see that I may not have eyes to see? Flaws I can't see in myself. Or my wife is really good at where I'm blind to something or negative about myself or prone to put myself down. She speaks the truth. No, this is what's true about you. So she's a voice that I am not speaking to myself. Incredibly helpful. My sanctification is a community project. So you all know that uh, Wallace is working through some strife. We've had strife over the last two years. Here at the congregational meeting Sunday, you maybe had a sense for some of that. Uh, folks expressing distrust in the session. This is not a secret, right? It's a public thing. Well, that's hard. It grieves all of us. But this thing that's happening corporately is for all of our sanctification. Your interims, as well as the seven or six-year-old in the church somehow. Okay? All of us are being sanctified by this. Right? Do you believe that? Sanctification is a community project. 
So that's the broader context. I'm thinking of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Let's turn there and read it because that probably makes the case better than any other scripture. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, the first one there gets to read it. Did I type it out on your handout? I don't think I did. Yeah. So it's in the Bible. <laughs> Duh. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Thank you. And then he goes on to the unity that we have by virtue of the gospel. Thank you. So what, how about that? You look at that verse and the first thing you ask yourself is, could that be me? Am, am I contributing the opposite of these? Is it my pride, my lack of gentleness, my lack of patience, my lack of bearing with others? Because those things left unchecked in me are going to destroy what? The unity of the spirit, which we are called to, what's the operative verb? We are called to NAS had preserve, ESV has, isn't it maintain? You're called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The implication is God gives us unity by virtue of being in union with Christ. We're called to maintain it and preserve it. And it's our sin that dissolves it and breaks it apart. So, <clears throat> what won't work in this sort of organization? Self-promotion. Self-absorption, self-exaltation, self-protection. Looking at that, I ask myself the question, could that be me? That's one of the most helpful questions you can ask. And then, of course, you always follow that up with, what has Jesus done for me? You know, never ask that question without the second question, but look how much Jesus loves me. Here's one reason why, because... Your, your, um, your Christianity, there's two forms of Christianity that were. The two forms are loving Jesus, loving Jesus. There's the two types of ways you live out Christianity. Loving Jesus, loving Jesus. So in the one, this is a verb. The primary focus of your life is I need to love Jesus. It's focused on what you do. I don't think that's the most helpful way to live the Christian life. I think it's far better to see loving as an adjective where the focus of your life is a loving Jesus. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And being smitten by that love and grace and mercy and tenderness and kindness and patience outflows love for him. It's sort of the first thing, it's sort of the last thing, I think you've seen me do this before, but I'll do it again. It's the last thing you tell yourself as you start the day. After you, after you ask the question, could that be me? Okay? Is, <clears throat> Jesus loves me, but I'm a sinner, or I'm a sinner, would that be me? But I'm deeply loved. See the difference? What's the difference? It's sort of the last thing you tell yourself 
is the basis on which you live the day and either have something to prove or don't have something to prove. So what side of the butt do you live on? He loves me. Tell yourself that every morning. Psalm 90, Moses says, Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness and we will be glad all, all the day. I need to be satisfied with the love of Christ every day in the morning because I just assume overnight and my sense of how much Jesus loves me has gone out of my heart and needs to be pumped up again every morning. Be filled with the Spirit is a present imperative. Jesus loves me, but I know I'm a big sinner. So this is where I land that sort of the last thought, that puts me on a certain trajectory through the day. Versus, I meet Jesus in my quiet time, I'm a big sinner, da, 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 but he loves me. What will that produce if that can't? Do you think? If I'm right. Peace. Peace? He loves me. I'm at peace with him, I can be at peace with others. Joy? Somebody asked me for... $50? Are you more inclined to do it here or here? Generosity? What else? You see the point. <clears throat> One tends to put the focus on your performance as a Christian. The other, your identity as a Christian, who you are. In fact, this is another discussion for another day, the New Testament virtually never calls Christians sinners. They're saints. And we, we, if you listen, just listen to the way people talk. You are not a group of sinners. You are saints who struggle with sin. You have been rescued from the dominion of sin. You're set apart as God's possession. You're holy ones, saints, hagias. God has begun a process of sanctification in you, hagiasmas. But you're not a sinner being sanctified. You're saints are being sanctified. All the New Testament epistles are addressed to saints. In Ephesus, the saints in Philippi, the saints in Colossae, the saints in Corinthians. So you should not think of yourself as a sinner. You should say, I'm a saint, I'm in union with Christ, who happens to struggle with sin. Okay? That's just a, a pet peeve of mine. Nate? So why don't we use that language then? We should use it. So how can we change this then? So to me, it's. Go ahead, change it. Uh, I don't necessarily have a solution for it. But to me, the Bible uses a manifestation of an activity, like when it says, you're a liar, what that does. So to me, it says, you are a person whose life is characterized by consistent lying, which is not something you're trying to stop, right? So I think most Christians, if there's a personification of a sin that would apply to them, even if it was something that they're struggling with, would not appreciate being characterized that way. But sinner, I think, is the same thing, where your life is not characterized by ongoing sin, which you're really not trying to stop doing. You would say, well, yes, sometimes I fall into this. Um, does that make sense? So that's why I completely agree, but we still hear a lot that Christians are sinners. And I think the New Testament uses it as, you know, Christ came to save sinners. People were sinners before yep. he worked with them. They are not no longer people that are characterized by ongoing sin by which they're not repenting. That's right. I completely agree, but I think we do hear that a lot. And I think we hear that a lot, especially at the table. So you'll be in the service. Guess what? Sinners come here. Well, actually, these are saints who need uh, this you know, reminder and have an opportunity to come and have communion together. But that's not the same thing as calling sinners that are going to come do that. Yep. I agree. So maybe 
that implicit in this is I'm a saint who's loved uh, versus landing there. And coming over here is <clears throat> I'm a saint struggling with sin, but I'm loved. So maybe we even need to change this. I'm a saint who struggles with sin. And the point is, where are you going to put your focus? We, you sh- don't you focus on your sin in the morning? Yes! You'll, you're going to hear this in the sermon. You'll never know how much Jesus loves you until you know how much you sin. And if you love Jesus, you're going to want to look at your sin and ask, could that be me? And what is it you're changing? Because you have an increasing appetite for the glory of God and sin is about your glory and it becomes increasingly distasteful to you. And so you want to explore your sin. That's why we read the Bible every morning. We say, Lord, convict me. Could that be me? There's no condemnation in this. The Holy Spirit has been unleashed into your heart to show you how unlike Jesus you are if left to yourself, but that's how loved you are. Those who are forgiven much love much. Okay? So you, now you know you can leave before the sermon ends because that's the end of the sermon. You'll never uh, know how much, you know. There's two types of Christianity. Seeing your sin but not seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus but not seeing your sin. And in both of those, you never know how much he loves you. So there you go. Leave before the sermon's over if you have something you need to do. Ha ha. <clears throat> okay, so no pet peeve of mine. I, I think Nate and I are in agreement with that. You're a saint who struggles with sin. And this is, sorry. Romans 7, Paul says, when he does this thing about this inward struggle with sin, yes, theologians, even Reformed theologians, are disagreed about where this is in Paul's conversion process. But nonetheless, he says, but it is not I, but sin that indwells me. He says, as I look at myself, I'm an I here, and what's going on is a battle sin in me. He does not define himself by sin. He defines himself in relation to this internal battle that's at war with him inside him. 1 Peter 2, I think it's 11 and 12, wage, uh, wage war with the sin that... Uh, I'm not saying it for it. Anyway, sin is at war within us. We're not sinners. We're saints at war with sin. And we battle sin to the day we die. That's the doctrine of perseverance. Okay. Push pause on all that. Is that helpful? Is that clear? Does that make sense? Does that give you joy? Does it give you more confidence? Does it make you want to run to Jesus? Does it inflame your worship? If it doesn't, I'm failing you. I also think that the way you come out on those two affects how you see other people and their broken. Elaborate. Yeah, yeah. Good. So Say more. We're focusing on the fact that we're sinners. We're most likely, well, in great humility, we can, you know, I think it takes a lot of humility to see your own sin, but I still think, depending on your perspective coming to it, is that you can be looking at others' sin and seeing that rather than seeing the love of Christ working in them. Good. So one way, one thing Janice is saying is, somebody famous said, when you look at other people's sin and you see them as specks in their eye, what do you need to see first? Your laws. And you really don't have clear sight of other people's sins until you've come to grips with what? Your laws. You, You don't see clearly. And when you see clearly, you can help people with their sin. He says, then go help them with their specks. But that presumes you've already had gone to somebody and say, help me with my logs. So it's expectations. I, I knew a pastor years ago who said this, sort of wryly. He said, I have 
no expectation of unbelievers and little expectation of believers. Meaning, what do you expect from somebody, first of all, what do you expect from somebody who doesn't know Christ? Do you expect them to live a godly life? Why would they? If, if yet, if by common grace, in spite of themselves, they're better than their, their life or worldview would have them be, then thanks be to God. But he said, you know, do you, do you get up in the morning and expect that your spouse is going to sin against you? Do you expect it? You should. Because they're a saint who struggles with sin. I caught myself. <laughs> I caught myself. <laughs> so, um, so like, right, why should I be shocked? All right. Anything else you want to say about this? <clears throat> Does anybody struggle with self-promotion? Look at me. Be impressed with what I know I can do. Anybody struggle with that? With, with that? Can, can we be honest in the Christian community? Can we just say, in, in, in view of the cross, that we struggle with this stuff? And that we're, we're really... Can we say we struggle? Can we? I want to have a church where we say we can struggle with this. We don't have to pretend. We struggle with this stuff. Some of us in different ways than others. I struggle with self-promotion. I want people to be impressed with me. And then God just kind of says, what's wrong with you? You don't have anything to offer them. But what comes from me? Don't you want them to be impressed with me? Yes, I do at the end of the day. Forgive me. (laughs) Cleanse me. Anybody struggle with self-absorption? Why aren't I getting more credit? Why don't I get more attention? I uh, got my eyes on myself. Look, when you woke up this morning, your eyes were on yourself. Just assume that. If you woke up in a spirit of gracious other-centeredness, glory to God. It's a, you're a walking miracle. <laughs> you work in your dreams. You what? You're still dreaming? Yeah, yeah, I do, I do pray for Jesus to work in your dreams. Yeah, I mean, I pray over my mind, usually on a Saturday night. Protect me, Lord. Protect me, Ken. Is what Jesus says about when you, uh, you ask and you don't receive because you want to spend it on your own lusts. If you, that we should, there's a good way to desire good things and ask for good things, but our heart should be, how can I use that to serve others and love them and serve others? Awesome. It's so easy for us to spend. Yeah, and that's what we're getting in the text in the handout. We'll obviously get there next week. Good point. I mean, how many of us pray, Lord, give me such and such so I can bless others. So so I can be a conduit. I'm a conduit. One of the words for humility in Old Testament referred to a pipe. Bless me. Let, let Let things, let your grace and goodness flow from me to the benefit of others. And who modeled that? Who is the supreme example of that par excellence? Jesus. He gave up everything for us. The ultimate vessel of life, resurrection, justification, forgiveness, acceptance with God, reconciliation. He is the ultimate vessel of that and also a great cost to himself. And the point is, that DNA in us enables us to live the same way. Radu? Just to point out that sometimes we have our own vision of what that blessing might look like. Yes. But it's actually the withholding of that blessing that we might be able to be a conduit, like you said, in blessing others. The, we, the withholding, God withholding from of, of what we perceive to be how we <clears throat> in 
vision that particular housing. You know, maybe it's something like, you know, plus me with good health, but it's when you're not in good health and you're in a hospital and you're administering to, to those around you. Good. How many people pray, Lord, bless my finances so I can give more? Thank you for your honesty. Do we pray that? Do we follow through on it? My experience has been the most generous people are the people with sort of the moderate incomes. Because if you make $200,000 a year, tithing is just a start. You probably ought to be double tithing. You know, something like that. Or am I living too extravagantly if I'm... Okay. Well, we're out of time. Um, well, self-exaltation, anybody struggle with that? Why well, I feel superior to you. Self-protection, I won't let you in. I'm hiding my shame. That would be the extreme conflict avoider. And so we'll begin next time at 3, and we'll continue working through this. Let's, uh, let me pray for our worship. Thank you, Father, for your precious saints. What a privilege and joy for me to share with them this morning. We do so on the strength of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate reconciliation we have with you. And that the triumph of his cross, the assurance of the resurrection, guarantees we can struggle with, in relationship with confidence and hope and peace and assurance and grace and uh, love in the face of our failures, acceptance in the face of our, our uh, reluctance. So pour out upon this precious church a spirit of other-centeredness and humility, gentleness, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as Christ and God has forgiven you. As we worship now, Lord, pour out your spirit, a spirit of welcome. May the stranger feel loved. Pour out a spirit of conversion that the Holy Spirit would bring anyone in our assembly who is in darkness and blind and death, bring them to life and sight and hope and life. And let us adore you with all of our hearts, with loud voices and vibrant hearts. Let us adore you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. In Christ's name, amen.